Benjamin Earl Evans is a persuasive guy. He has a presence and demeanor that draws you into the stories that he tells. So perhaps it's not a surprise that he got his start in the performing arts at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. Benjamin's currently leading Airbnb's anti-discrimination design team. We chat with him about how his background in acting and performing led to a career in design, as well as how that training informs his work today. We also speak about how inclusive design plays into team dynamics and structure, and Benjamin gives some tips on how you can bring more inclusivity into your own organization. So let's roll up the stage curtains, turn on the spotlight, and hear from Benjamin. Thanks for listening. Benjamin Earl Evans is an inclusive design lead, a new breed of problem solvers tackling issues like racism, sexism, and bias. He uses design thinking to help everyone from creative professionals to business leaders create more inclusive products and services. Currently, he works as a design lead for Airbnb's anti-discrimination team. Previously, he worked to craft award-winning solutions for clients all over the world. We know from previous conversations with Benjamin that he's a fan of The Rock, as are we. Benjamin Evans, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thank you for having me. Our listeners can't see it, but I'm doing the rock eyebrow the, right the now. The rock eyebrow, the, the lean in. That's a, that's a good one. I'm pretty bad at that. I need to practice myself. So Benjamin, so we're so excited to have you here. And maybe we, you have a really interesting history or kind of career path as a designer and you, uh, with a background in the performing arts. Maybe you could tell us a story of how that led into a, a career in design. Sure. Um, that's not a short story, though. So I'm, uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> also, I love the way that you phrased it, like an interesting background. It's like, mm, to me, it's more like I'm very indecisive, but all right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, I actually never wanted to be a, a designer. I mean, I, I started my career. I didn't really know design existed. I, I wanted to be an actor. And so I went off and I trained at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, which is based in London, primarily stage training. And after graduating there, I realized that there is this interesting lie in the entertainment industry that we're all told as performing artists, which is if you just focus on your craft, then success will follow. This notion that you don't need to market yourself or even think about business as long as you're talented enough. And ask any performing artist who's kind of out there knocking on doors, you kind of realize that that's not true at all. There are far more talented people than there actually are jobs. And so quickly I realized that this wasn't true. And so in the evenings I actually started studying sales and psychology and marketing so that I could try and find a way to build this business and a brand around myself. Around about this time I realized I needed a website. But being a broke and starving actor, I didn't have the money to pay a highly talented designer. So I just decided to learn design myself. And I remember I grabbed a copy of Photoshop and spent most evenings just, you know, trying to figure things out. And a really, I think it was like a for dummies book on HTML and CSS, just so that I could build myself a landing page. And when I finished it, you know, just a simple single page with my big head right in the middle of it. Um, I remember being incredibly proud of what it was, and I showed it to all of my acting friends, and they wanted one as well. And very quickly, that actually ended up growing into like my first business, this mini agency that was building landing pages for performing artists. And I remember around about that time, I would be auditioning during the day, like building websites during the day, and in the evenings, I'd be on stage. And then there was this 
kind of a pivotal moment, really. And I was in a production of Othello, playing Othello, and I was taking a bow on stage, and I realized that I actually didn't like applause, which is kind of a problem for an actor. I didn't like being on stage. I realized that what I actually loved about acting was this whole process of the craft, of understanding what it's like to be someone else, of this, this process that's rooted in empathy and self-discovery. And in that moment, it just became apparent that I couldn't act anymore. It wasn't where my heart was. And so I kept growing the agency. And then I realized it was a, another particularly cold, rainy day in London. And I realized that there's no reason for me to be in London. I'm building a, a digital agency. Why don't I go somewhere else? And so I packed my stuff up and moved to Jamaica at that point, enjoyed the warmer climbs, and I just expanded the business from there now by taking on clients in the tourism industry, because that's primarily is where Jamaica's economy is rooted. And so I brought, you know, building all of these clients, building up this agency, building a distributed team, very similar to Envision, I believe. And... I, at a certain point, I realized that I was tired of Jamaica in this instance. You know, I, and I say this to people, and they often are like, well, Jamaica's this, this paradise, and it is. But paradise isn't quite the same if you're living and working there. It's, it's just home. And so at that point, I moved back to the UK because I wanted to see, you know, what are some different opportunities? What are some different challenges that I can pursue? And London, cold, miserable, started hanging out with some of my old acting friends and it occurred to me that I could use these new you know, design agency superpowers to try and solve problems that I faced as an actor. And so I actually created a startup at that point. It was called Get Cast, as in to get cast in TV and film. And I set out to build LinkedIn for the entertainment industry. And so it was, you know, the platform itself was a variety of different landing pages. You could pick it, you have your themes, and then we connect people with work. And within about three months of launching, you know, we had thousands and thousands of signups. And so I went on and raised a seed round at that point. And that seed round kicked off you know, a whirlwind moving out to uh, Chile to take part in Startup Chile, and then moving out to San Francisco for the first time, started pitching to SV Angels, and I got into an incubator called Matter at this point. Um, and Matter is led by Corey Ford. And it was actually under Corey Ford who I really got my first training in design thinking because he used to teach it at Stanford, and he founded the entire uh, incubator upon the principles of it. And so myself, my team were there, we're iterating, we'd, we'd done what Corey calls the drunken walk of the entrepreneur. And we'd ended up, you know, actually serving uh, with a product that serves an entirely different market segment, we'd ended up building a platform to try and connect freelance designers with work. And then kind of, I had this disaster struck moment, where I realized that Something they kind of don't teach you about lean startup is that as you're pivoting, you should always check in that the problem you're solving is something you still care about. And so mm. although we had pivoted to a business that was more profitable than GetCast, we'd pivoted out of something that we loved. And at that point, I, again, like decided this wasn't for me. So I closed up the business, um, ensured my team were in different companies. And then I went traveling looking for interesting problems. And it's, it's fascinating because throughout all of this, I still didn't call myself a designer. Design wasn't a career, really. Even though I'd run an agency, you know, as an agency, I was the agency owner. I wasn't a designer. As a startup founder, I was the CEO, not a designer. So design was still this tool that I had in, in my arsenal, but it was only one thing. And as I was traveling around the world, like every two, three months, we'd pick a new city, a new country, go and find an interesting problem, and then 
position myself as a solution. At a certain point, Airbnb actually reached out when I was in Vietnam, in fact. Vietnam, in Tao Dien, and they had found me via an Instagram post. And they said, do you want to talk about design? And it wasn't really until that moment. I was like, how did you know design is something I even do? Because the only trace of me online is really a landing page from my acting days and a LinkedIn profile, which is fragmented at best. Um, and I, after a lot of discussions, I decided to come on board and join them. And so, yeah, now I'm a, a designer, as they say. <laughs> So how did they find you? What, I mean, like, <laughs> what, what was it that, that drew them to you? So I was in Vietnam, and like I said, I started traveling all of these different countries looking for interesting problems. And at a certain point, I actually hit a depression because I wasn't finding anything that provided long-term engagement. That made me feel alive and, and happy to wake up to solve each day. It's, I would solve a problem, feel that bit of elation, and then move on. And so I ended up in this depression, and the moment you know I, I realized I was in it, which took a fair few months, I decided that I was going to create a little plan to take myself out of this depression. And the way that I would do that is every day I would design something very simple, very motivational, aspirational, and I would post it online. And the goal of these posts would be to try and make 10,000 people smile. And it's a totally arbitrary number. I just wanted to... Mm see if by making other people smile, I can make myself smile and bring myself out of this. And the that, that sounds a little bit like acting, Benjamin. A little bit. Oh, I'm, I, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Let me pretend my way out of this to some degree. Um, and the platform I chose was Instagram. You know, it was, it's simple, it's visual. It just let me post something without, you know, without all of the overhead of, say, posting on a LinkedIn or, or a Facebook. And I think it was day 36 or so, day 37, I'd gone from like zero to seven-ish thousand followers and likes. And I, you know, I was counting a like and a follower as a quote-unquote smile. Um, and around about that point, Airbnb reached out and they, they had seen one of these posts, one of their recruiters called, called Reed. And that's actually what piqued my interest initially was, how did you find me? How did you know I'm a designer? I'm, I'm not on anywhere. I'm not on Behance. I'm not on Dribbble. I'm What's going on? And that really kicked off a, an interesting conversation. So you get, you get this recruiting call from Airbnb. It sounds interesting, and you join. At that point, what was the position that they were interested in, in having you join as? So they, around about the time, this was 2016, and so Airbnb, um, there was a trending hashtag called hashtag Airbnb while black, and it was the experiences of black guests that they were sharing in being discriminated against. So as a black guest, someone would, you know, you'd send a reservation request to a host, the host may decline it, and then you'd have a friend of yours, a white friend, send the same request, which would be accepted. And so this became a story that actually a lot of black people, including myself, have, have encountered. And so they were sharing this at the time, um, and this hashtag was trending, and so they reached out to me directly for this role. I remember a conversation fairly early on with Katie Dill, who used to be one of the uh, heads of design, amazing design leader asked me this, like, do I want to come on board and join, you know, this, this new team to try and use design to solve a problem like discrimination, like bias and sexism and racism? And I remember initially I was like incredibly elated. You know, it's this, this, this lovely moment of this amazing design-led company has reached out with me in the middle of nowhere and would like me to lead this team. And then I thought about it a little bit more and suddenly the reality kind of hit in this reality of 
you want me, a, a black man, to move to America to tackle racism. And that moment is like, this doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but... It's pretty heavy. Yes, pretty heavy. But, you know, if I'm looking for an interesting problem, I can't think of anything else that's more interesting than that. Um, and that's more fulfilling and meaningful. And Brian Chesky, our founder, had actually just put out a post saying that discrimination is something that we don't stand for in any way whatsoever. It cuts to the core of who we are. And they're actually the only company that I've seen take a very overt stance about this, that this is a problem that we, that we do not accept, that does not belong on our platform, and we're going to try everything we can to mitigate it and to figure out what's going on. And so to see that kind of inspired me. I thought, well, if there's going to be a company that I will give up my freelance professional career and everything for, why not this one? So Benjamin, when you first got to Airbnb, obviously the scope of this problem is, is very broad and, and probably deep too. So how, what were some of the ways that, that you and your team started thinking about how to approach the problem from a design perspective? I actually remember arriving on the first day and just having this complete moment of terror about it because it's not a problem that has been solved, probably won't be a problem that will be solved by anyone. There is no precedent for this in product teams. And so one of the first things that the team was doing and had done just before I arrived was speaking to a lot of professionals about this. It was about getting what are the insights that we can learn you know, from the history of America's past with discrimination. And we chose that you, know, you can't boil the ocean. And so narrowed down the focus to thinking, let's focus on race-based discrimination in the US initially. And then what I did, which is what I always do when kind of stumped is I turn to you know, design thinking, human-centered design. Like, I don't know the answer, but let me focus on the problem and the process. And so it just began with, you know, let's kick off a series of design sprints and a series of brainstorms to try and think about what could solutions be to this. And then we coupled that with research. Like we have some wonderful, talented researchers on the team. Nanako is one of them. And like doing research with black guests and with guests from other underrepresented groups and doing research with hosts and just trying to understand what is going on here. And yeah, those insights form the foundation of brainstorming sessions where we just try to ideate, well, what are the parts of product that could be contributing towards this or that what are the ways that we are not protecting our community enough? And from that, we ended up with this sprawling mass of ideas that I remember in the early days, we actually had quite a lot of arguments about. Not, not heated, yelling arguments, but just we couldn't find the consensus around what are the projects we should work on next? What's the first thing we should do? What's the second? Because, and this is, I had this crisis moment early on, I believe in diversity. That, that, that's a given. I believe that diversity of thought makes us stronger. But a challenge within having a diverse team, and we do have a very diverse team, is that this diversity of thought means that it can be hard to reach a consensus around things because everyone has a different experience with discrimination and nobody knows what works and there's no precedent. So when it came down to doing like dot voting or stack ranking of ideas, we would often be voting from the hip within this voting from our own subjective emotional experiences, which isn't really any way to kind of guide product decision and reach alignment. But that's all we knew at that point. And so that was actually one of the very first challenges that we had to navigate as a team was, well, how do we, given our 
diverse backgrounds, how do we reach a consensus around a problem that is so emotional and challenging <laughs> within the space that we're working in? Why, why is emotion not a valid way to cast a vote or to construct an argument when we're talking about products? Because, I mean, when we think about user experience and creating successful, you know, customer journey, emotion is baked into it. Emotion is, is really key. Uh, wrote a, I wrote a whole book about it called Designing for Emotion. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm curious, how do you strike a balance? Because especially on this topic, having a diverse team, those emotional reactions and, hey, this is my life experience, bringing that to the team is important for this problem. And then balancing that with, uh, here are KPIs, here's the kind of the clinical uh, quantitative approach to things as well. Yeah, I mean, it's emotion is it's absolutely valuable in these discussions, but it shouldn't be the only thing that you're making a decision on. And I think you touched on it lightly towards the end of what you were saying there is that it has to be this balance. We can't be entering the room as collaborators and just voting on pure emotion. We need to be finding and encouraging objective decision-making because or else what we're really doing is we're voting based upon bias. And you can't solve a problem like bias by using a process that's rooted in the same bias. <laughs> and so that's something that we had to learn very early on is let's see what kind of mental models and frameworks there are for objective decision-making. Let's figure out a way of leaving some of this emotion at the door initially so that we can actually make a decision that is better overall and has more longer-term thinking. Here's, a, here's a, an example. Myself as an actor, something I have invested a lot of time in is being able to tell a good story, a story that does have emotion in it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the idea that I convey in a product room is a better idea, but it will appear to be a better idea because I've told it with a better story <laughs> and I've told it with more emotion. And so what I, a failing of mine, you know, early on is that I would often just by default and habit wrap my ideas up or my proposals up in this storytelling that triggers these emotions that come true and authentic from me. And it, it actually can blind the team to what is a better decision to make, one that's not, because you know, as humans, emotions sway us. So true. I want to revisit your team because you, you talked about having a very diverse team, and this can be one of the challenges. Um, hiring is hard. This is something we hear all the time from lots of different teams that we interact with you know, the mechanics of it, but it's especially hard because we have these biases built in of hiring people that have similar worldviews or similar lines of thinking, similar backgrounds, something we can identify with. This is just, you know, it's, it's human nature that we have to keep that top of mind so we can counteract that. So I'd love to hear how you built this team, you know, what was the process like, and then what do you get and what do you, in your, from your perspective, what do all of us get when we have a more diverse group of people in our teams and in our companies? Sure. So, um, I mean, just to call out something, between the offer being extended and me actually arriving in the U.S., there was already a foundational team that they put in place for this. And so what I can really speak to is our general company culture and how we, how we hire in people. In, in essence, we try and have as many objective processes in place as possible for various roles. We take the interest of the individual in terms of the, the problems that you're interested in and how you want to work and what areas of the product you want to work on into account. But everything we try to do is try to be as, I don't want to use the term, 
blind because it's an ableist term, but it's as obscured as possible. So you're not voting based upon here is someone's skin color or here's someone's uh, uh, gender. It's we look at the individual for their attributes initially, and then we have a multi-tiered interview process that's focused on very objective questions and ranked answers uh, that we're looking for specific criteria. And then we come together and have a discussion based upon this process. And so everyone is then able to you know, contribute their own subjective opinion, but no matter what, it's rooted in an objective process or in a process that seeks to be as objective as possible so that we're getting a better overview of the candidate free from our own individual biases. And when we have someone joining the team, like over the, over the year, you know, we've had a couple members leave, we've had some more, a lot more members join. When we're looking at individuals, that is one data point, and it's a very important data point, their, their background and the diversity of thought that they bring to this team. And there have absolutely been scenarios where we're looking at you know, several different candidates from various different backgrounds, and we're simultaneously trying to take into account, well, what person's diversity, what person's thought process, what's, what's their thinking that would benefit this team more as a whole? More so than, oh, this person is female, this person is male, this person is brown, this person is... It's, it's, it's a very <laughs> somehow objective, holistic, and subjective experience altogether, and we just try and do better each time. And in terms of the, what this diversity brings, diversity is just this essential part of creativity. When you have homogenous teams and everyone thinks, feels, or acts in similar ways, yes, you get to ship products often quicker. It's actually somewhat easier to collaborate in those environments because there are far fewer things to disagree on as you collaborate together compared to a, a much more diverse team. But the solutions that you get and the insights you get from having a team that is from such diverse backgrounds, that's where you get this real innovation coming from that, that I've seen and that I've experienced. And it, in fact, only recently I was in London uh, doing a talk on innovation and something occurred to me that Diversity and inclusion has always been the core of innovation. If innovation is about taking two ideas that are different and overlaying them and mixing them, then that means that the more you do that, the more opportunities there are for innovation and the more creativity there is. And so we see that even in the smaller moments of we'll be doing a brainstorm and someone will come up with ideas that just never occurred to me in any way whatsoever. Mm that never would occur to me because they're not rooted in any experience I have. Like we see that time and time again. And this, you know, statistics on the other side show that more diverse teams are typically more profitable, that they're ranked to be more innovative, that the products that they create typically resonate with wider swatches of the population that resonate more. So all around diversity and inclusion is, is a wonderful thing to try and imbue your teams with, but it absolutely is a challenge because of the friction that being different has. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. 
you're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. So kind of curious how, you know, and maybe we've already been touching on this and I've just been thinking of it from a designer's frame of mind, but how do we think about inclusive design in relation to not only, say, the racial or ethnic or gender background of somebody, but their mode of thinking, whether they're a designer or engineer, and does that does inclusive design have anything to say about those types of team dynamics? Yes, I mean, if inclusive design is is really the process of bringing those who are outside or the other or those whose experience is like the extreme, it's about bringing those groups into the core of your creation and the way that you create, about involving people, including them in the process. Then it stands that like inclusive design sets a strong framework for how you can collaborate with people from different disciplines, with your engineers, with your, with your product managers. Um, because like the very baseline for so much of this is you know, what we often say to be empathy, that you're looking to understand someone else's perspective and the viewpoints that they have. And when it comes to the way that teams work together, that's often, I believe, is the first failing, that we join a team and we expect everyone to do their job, but we don't really know definitively what their job is and the struggles of it and what it entails. And so you end up with these stresses that kind of occur and build over time. Like I I work with very many talented engineers, but I didn't really understand the depth of the challenges that they face in their day-to-day work and, and what excites them about the problems that they seek to solve. And it was only through really thinking, well, how can I use inclusive design principles? How can I go out to where they are and bring them into the same circle as me so that we can find the shared understanding that is rooted in our differences? That's only that did I ever realize, okay, that's the, the baseline. That's the middle ground. And so I kind of love that inclusive design by its nature. We often think of it as you know, race or gender or sexuality or whatever it might be. But it's really just a framework for collaboration in the purest sense. Let's build on that a little bit more because Airbnb is famous for letting story guide creativity and creative exploration, um, creating a framework, a vision for this is where we're going, what we're trying to achieve, and it being open enough that people can operate and bring their own skills and perspective to to that. Case in point, the uh, the value or just the mission statement that I've heard Alex Schleifer talk about, VP of Design that Airbnb wants uh, people to feel comfortable wherever they are, to feel included or to feel safe. What's, what's the exact wording of the mission? Um, anyone can belong anywhere. Anyone can belong anywhere. And so here is this structure. It is a, a framework, um, and that guided your decision at a recent Super Bowl. Uh, there was a Super Bowl ad created, and my understanding is that was pretty last minute, like, there was a direction that the, the ad was going, and then there were some things happening politically in the United States where there was a shift, and that ad came together very quickly. It's just faces of people who work at Airbnb, and it just showcases very close-up shots. This is the diverse group of people who are Airbnb, and this is what we stand for. And 
it's really hard to have that sort of agility and that sort of creativity at hand without the clarity of vision and that storytelling that's built in. And of course, there's also listeners could Google Airbnb and Snow White, and they'll find that great video of the storyboards that guide and uh, the design team to help understand empathy of the guest experience and the host experience. So you are someone, as you've just uh, shared with us, storytelling is in your bones. It's who you are. It's in your training. It's your craft. Um, it's a big part of what you you do. Can you talk about your approach to storytelling in your work at Airbnb and how you and your colleagues work together with a framework of storytelling to be creative? Sure. So one of the things I love the most about stories is that they are this universal equalizer, that we all love listening to them, that we all understand them. And so when it comes to the way that we collaborate as a team, we often will look for the, I don't want to say the hero because it's not quite the right word, not quite the star, but we look for what is this first story, this person who is at the hub, who has, often we'll, we'll see this expressed in user personas, like who is this person that we're going to focus on for now and what is their need? Now, once you kind of have a sense as to what that is, we typically will branch that out. As a designer, I will often mop that out into some kind of like very low-end storyboard, just as a way of trying to visualize like what are the problems they face, what's their state of mind, how do they navigate their world. I did this early on with when we were looking at race-based discrimination. I would map out the journey of a black guest. Do that actually into storyboards so that at least you get a sense as to, you know, here is said person, their day-to-day, what is the inciting incident that snaps them out of that? Oh, they, they want to book a trip on Airbnb. What are the various high points, the emotional low points? And when you build out this narrative, I believe it does more than a user persona can, a single frame user persona can. It gives you more of a richer sense of who someone is or a group of people are. And so this often forms the foundation of the way that we as a company try to work. We try and encourage there to be a center point for every story. And as we're communicating our work or the projects, or we're making a case for something, we try and root it directly into this story. Now, that can cause problems as well. Um, And so to speak about a little bit more about that in the line of my work, one of the things that I've noticed with a lot of companies, ours included, is we see the value of a story, but we often don't recognize that that story, no matter how rich and vibrant, is actually only one story. And the problem with a single story is not that it is wrong in any way. It's just that it's incomplete. There isn't one Airbnb user. There isn't even five Airbnb users that we can anchor into the center of our stories. There are thousands of different individuals who can use Airbnb, and we want them to use Airbnb. And so we have to continually be creating new stories to shine a light on these individuals, often underrepresented groups, who are just not being seen. The moment that we can weave a story around them and make them be seen in our presentations, in our rooms, in when we're having these collaborative conversations, then it becomes a lot easier to help people understand how they can change the products that they're building or change their workflows to accommodate and account for and bring these people into this process so that we end up creating a more inclusive platform overall. And so storytelling is something that is, I mean, I love it. It's central to who I am. And it's a method that we as a company try and use to find as many different experiences within the overall Airbnb platform so that we can build for and with at all times. So building on what you were just 
talking about uh, you know storytelling and being more inclusive and the illustrations that Airbnb has have, have always been a really big part of the product and then, and part of the customer journey as they interact with the product. And recently you put together some new standards for illustrations. Could you talk a little bit about how that came about and what some of the, uh, the effects might have been? So this was the work of Jennifer Hom, who is one of the first lead illustrators at, at the company. And one of the first projects that she was tasked with was really taking a look at the way that we represent our community across the platform. And over time, the 11 or so years that Airbnb has been around, we've had so many different illustrators who have come through and created scenes or created icons. And so there was also this fractionation problem as well, of different styles. And one of the first things that she did was she went around and asked everyone in the company, as many people as she could, what are the things that you don't like about the way that we showcase individuals and groups? And what came back overwhelmingly and <laughs> loudly was that people weren't seeing themselves in these illustrations. They weren't seeing their experience reflected in any way. And this, of course, for us is a pretty huge problem, given that as a company, we try and be both global and hyper-local at the same time. So representation matters. And so she set out on this multi-month journey to really reassess how can we represent the people of our platform and our community in a way that resonates in a very deep way. And so the first thing she did was, was realize, well, every single character or person that there is on the platform if there's an illustration, it should be based upon a real person. It shouldn't be something incredibly abstract, like a blue-skinned individual or a creature of some kind, as you see with other illustration styles. It should be based upon a real person. And so she took loads of photos, then abstracted out um, face shapes from that. And then she put together an entire palette of different skin colors and started building out this framework where... You had a variety of head shapes, you had a variety of body shapes, you had a variety of skin colors, you had things like physical disability being represented within the illustrations. And there is some really beautiful illustrations on that are actually online at the moment. Uh, one of them springs to mind, and it's a scene of a host handing over the keys to a guest who has a little child with her. And just within that one scene, at first glance, you get the concept, handing over keys. But when you look deeper, you see that the host who's handing over the keys is an elderly male, whereas the guest is a younger female. So you have that kind of diversity of gender within that. And then when you look younger, there's a child there. So you have, again, diversity of age being brought in. And then when you look even closer, there's diversity of skin color. And then when you look really closely, you see that the guest actually has a prosthetic leg. And so in this one image you get so many different layers of representation, which to you know your, your average person looking at it, it's a scene where there are keys being handed over. But to individuals from these underrepresented groups, you see so much more. You get to see your reality reflected in this image. And it's just this really beautiful kind of coming together and showing that diversity inclusion doesn't have to be this in-your-face thing. <laughs> It, it, it can just be a very subtle and simple and beautiful experience that doesn't need to be heavy-handed. And so this just grew over time to these set of guidelines where now any of the illustrations on our sites, you know, we're still in the process of, of transitioning, but any new illustrations now will meet this framework. They will be built upon what real people look like based upon real skin colors representing real experiences. And we are so much the better for it. 
To that point, um, there was a great post that Diogenes Brito from Slack wrote when they released a new set of icons for Slack where they had you know, a variety of skin tones that people could use. And you know, he admitted like, hey, this is a small thing that we shipped, but it has a profound effect on me to be able to see myself in the thing that I'm making. And I think that for people in the world who are part of a well-represented culture, that's something that can easily be lost. And for those people who aren't paying attention to that, they're also missing the business opportunity, clearly, because the world is a big place and there, there are a lot of people. And if, uh, you know, it just doesn't make good business sense to limit your market to a small group of people. Absolutely. It's, it's, it, that's also one of the wonderful things I love about inclusive design is that often when we think about it, it's presented as this, this is the right thing to do as a way of, as a way of operating. But inclusive design is great for designers and for businesses because it means that you have a much greater market share, that the products that you build, if you're building them for and with people from underrepresented backgrounds, what you design and create stands a greater chance of resonating with people from those backgrounds. And so just by embracing these ideas and these principles of let's focus on the needs of people who are not like me, you become better in business, you become better as a designer, you become better in life, really. Some of my best friends are people who are completely different from me. Yeah. So let's, let's just maybe dig into this a little bit because we've touched on a few things. We talked about a very carefully crafted hiring process that tries to reduce biases and create more opportunity to bring different people in. Presumably, that's also part of the recruiter's job to make sure that they are sourcing talent from lots of different types of places and, and different groups. We've talked a bit about bringing, you know, if companies and design teams are doing illustration work, um, making sure that lots of people can see themselves in the product and feel more connected to that. And that's, of course, good for business. But what else could you share with, uh, with listeners that just some general guidelines of what brings more diversity and inclusion into the design process, into products, into companies that can help them be more successful? I think my favorite little tip, it's actually a very simple tip, um, that I started doing when traveling is to ask a single question. And that question is, who are we missing? It's, it sounds really quite incredibly simple. But like we as designers, we're, we're very well-intentioned, often to a fault. We want to help people. We want to solve meaningful problems. But we also all have bias. You know, and to have bias is to be human. And the problem is not that we have bias. It's just that we're unaware of the way that it affects the work that we do. And so, in, in fact, we see this in human-centered design. Like we, we sit down and we go out and we find a group. And I'm sure the listeners know all the details of human-centered design. But what most people don't ever ask is, which human do we place at the center? We never think about that. And so without being more conscious and aware of these choices, we, our bias leads us to place ourselves and those who look like us at the core of what we do. We design from this place of bias, we ship it, and then we use the internet to amplify the results of our bias, which overwhelmingly create exclusionary experiences. And so something very simple is if you just ask, who are we missing early and often? you're actually able to better identify what are the ways that bias is subtly influencing the decision I'm making. Who are the people who are missing from this boardroom table, from this design sprint? Who are the people who are missing in our hiring practice? And it allows you to do it in a way that 
you can challenge your own bias in a way that doesn't mean you have to feel ashamed for having bias, <laughs> which is often a problem when we see people trying to embrace you know, in- inclusive thinking in some way. There's this weird shame that accompanies having bias, even though it's something we all have. And so anyone from different groups, whether it be designers or marketers or business leaders, I try and encourage them just to ask, who are you missing? And you'll start to get some very interesting insights that you can act on and change your teams and change your ways of thinking and build more inclusive products and services for all. I love that. It's a very simple and straightforward way to think about that, bringing that process in more deeply if you haven't already. So that's, that's really wonderful. And it's, it is, it's one of those things where we, to reimagine or redesign or move an organization towards a more inclusive way of thinking, acting, and being it's tough. It takes years and it's never over. <laughs> and that's going to be one of the first stumbling blocks is, you know, you bring this idea of, hey, we'd like to be more inclusive to the boardroom or to your leaders and immediately it's shut down because it's hard to do and there's no end in sight. And so that, yeah, that's why I love that as a simple question is that it can help everyone do that in their day-to-day lives. And of course, there are, there are other things that one can do. As an engineer, you can ensure that what you code meets web accessibility standards, et cetera, et cetera. But before any of those kinds of things, it has to start with awareness. And this gives you a tool to reach that state. Absolutely. So you recently participated in a prototype program that, that came out of our design ed team, which is the design exchange program in Munich. And we we're hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that experience and what happened along the way. Oh, I'm I'm still processing it. It was <laughs> it was intense and overwhelming and in the best way and and engaging and it was one of the highlights of my design career really. It was what was it now? A couple months ago, um Kristen, well, of course you both know Kristen, but the listeners probably don't know Kristen D'Angelis, um reached reached out about this, you know, this new program, design exchange program from Envision that really sought to take a group of designers from around the world and place them into a new environment, a new country, a new city, and just explore design through that city or that culture's lens. And so myself and a group of four others, it was uh, Kim Williams from Indeed, Lindsay Norman from Pinterest, Ashley von Klausberg from Automatic, and Laura Martini from Google, we went to Munich for the best part of a week. And over that time, we got to experience design through a unique German lens. We did uh, an architectural walking tour. We we explored the history of typography with a professor of typography as we walked around these cobblestone streets. We did a photography class with this wonderfully quirky professor who was encouraging us to see ourselves from different perspectives to reflect what it's actually like when you're in a new culture. We what else we do? We spent a day making this giant collaborative art piece, like I said earlier, uh, by the team called Layer Cake, um, and then we learned about design systems. And we did all of this with designers from Germany. And yeah, it was immersive and it was brilliant. And like I said, I'm still processing it because there were just so there was everything was so new and so vibrant, and I hadn't looked at design in that way before and through as many different lenses. Yeah, it was so meaningful. And so for our listeners who are curious about Design Exchange Program, um, Benjamin just sort of gave a bit of an overview, but our goal is that you know we, we believe that by bringing people together from around the world, 
and connecting them through this common language of design, we can broaden perspectives and help people see their work, bring fresh passion to their work, and just you know develop new perspectives that they would not have had otherwise. And that can make for uh, richer design work, human connection, lots of positive things that, that can happen um, in that experience. And so we'll link in the show notes to a site uh, where people can learn more about the Design Exchange Program and even apply to participate. So last question for you, Benjamin. Um, we'd like to know what you've been reading, uh, listening to that is informing your world, has you excited, is pushing you in new directions. I'm actually reading a lot of books on empathy at the moment. One that springs to mind is, is a book called Empathy, Why It Matters, How to Get It. And then HBR has another book called, actually just called Empathy. And then there's another book called Empathy Exam. And I'm reading them because I'm beginning to think, and this is still a, a thought in progress, that we over-index on this idea of empathy in the design world. It's framed as being this, this alpha and the omega of everything that we do. And I'm beginning to think that we don't go far enough when we, when we think of it. It's a great idea in theory that you want to empathize with the people who have a problem you wish to solve. But often I see it being used as, a, as like a clutch so that we don't have to bring these people back into the world that we're designing for. It's, hey, it's, it's this, almost this design savior complex that we all have where we, we try and do good things. But what we can often do in, in the pursuit of that is we don't bring our users into the process with us. We go out into the world grab these insights, bring it back to our team, but we leave the individuals on the outside. And something I've kind of noticed as this intersection between bias and, and my work is there are actually a lot of flaws with bias as a jumping point, as a, as a starting point, and as a, a lead into making decisions. Like empathy is, is rooted in bias. Like we're more likely to empathize with people who we believe look, think, and feel as we do, which is a real problem because it means that we end up actually building exclusion into the products and services if we act from this place of bias. Empathy encourages shorter-term decision-making because it's easier to empathize in the shorter term than it is to empathize with something five or ten years from now. So it encourages shorter-term thinking. It's rooted in, in bias. And it also there are also a number of other interesting frameworks and emotions and thoughts that we can make decisions on that aren't empathy. Things like logic. Mm. <laughs> could be interesting as well. I'm not necessarily a, a religious person myself, but spirituality, morality are also interesting places to make design decisions from. And so I suppose these books, and like I said, these ideas, I'm still noodling around a bit, but they're really making me uh, rethink or think deeper about this notion of the role that empathy plays in design. It's great. Benjamin Evans from Airbnb, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I learned a lot in this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's always a great day when you get to start it with a great conversation. So thank you. Mm -hmm.